Good morning. Uh, one other announcement that wasn't mentioned, this Saturday is the men's breakaway, so we'll be in here, uh, it's here, there's several Calvaries coming from 7.30 to 1, 7.30 to 8.30 is breakfast, and then we're going to go through Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 24, through three segments, we're going to be praying for, uh, for each other at times, we're going to be uh, worshiping together, so I hope you guys will come out for that. Also, if you noticed in the lobby, you might not have noticed it because you, if you've just come in, but the, wall, the outside wall, uh, Dusty, um, Dustin's, Justin's wife, Bitsy, painted that, if my house should be called a house of prayer, on the wall there. If you haven't seen it, it is the perfect scripture for our church, any church. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. So, uh, she, is Bitsy in here? Well, give it up for Bitsy. She, we'll, tell, we'll tell her that we did that. All right, so would you stand? We're in Mark chapter 3. We like to stand in honoring the word of God. I'm going to read parts of it. We're going to look at the gospel, why they came to Jesus this morning from this uh, section, which is Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 through 35, or, or the rest of the chapter. So in Mark 3 and verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. <clears throat> and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, he says it twice, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. And he went up on the mountain. Can somebody get me a <clears throat> bottle of water? I'm, I'm realize I'm, I'm going to be... <clears throat> And he went up on the mountain and called to him those who he, he himself wanted, and they came to him. And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Then the whole multitude came together again so that they could, uh, uh, that's verse, verse 20, so that they, they could not so much as eat. <clears throat> but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he's out of his mind. Verse 20, uh, 31, then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they said to him, they sent to him, calling him, <clears throat> and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, who is my mother and my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at, at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So, Lord, we want to ask your blessing on this time we have in your word. We know your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We understand, Lord, that you speak to us every time we read it, hear it, memorize it, spend time in it. You speak to us. This is your word, living and powerful. And we, Lord, there's no other book like it. And here we have it in such abundance. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to keep our noses in our Bibles, keep our knees on the ground. And keep in fellowship with you, even as we're looking at the gospel. And our responsibility, Lord, that you've given to us to be the heralds of this great message. So, Lord, what's going to be happening so much more effectively when we love you, are drawing close to you through your word, spending time with you. I would pray, Lord, even as I think about it for tomorrow night with the women and the spiritual disciplines, Lord, for the men the following Monday. Just that we would be drawing close to you this year in ways that we never have. Spending time with you. I pray, Lord, we'd hear your voice. We'd know your voice in such an even clearer way than we do even today. So bless this time in the word, I ask. Bless Calvary Chapel South. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Is there a water? 
now I can, if I can open it. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. This is, this is a solid Bible. You guys get those, you can't, like you try and twist the cap off and the whole top of the thing twists. And <clears throat> There's probably some spiritual application to that, but we'll just leave it there. <clears throat> <laughs> so if it helps you, I, I, I try and do this with all the studies, a little outline for these verses. Uh, why they came to Jesus, number one, to find him, secondly, to find fault, and then to become family. So we're going to look at these uh, this morning, just going through this text as we always do, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. So the gospel, why they came to Jesus, number one, to find him. First of all, the multitudes came to Jesus in hope of a cure. They were hoping that what they had been hearing about would be for them. They were hoping to hear what others have been talking about that would be for them. So they came to find him. So the multitudes came in hope of a cure. And it says he withdrew with his disciples to the sea. A great multitude from Galilee followed him. It says all this, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he, he was doing, he came. No, they're curious to hear him. They're, they're wanting to, to see him. So as he withdrew to the sea... Why was he withdrawing? Well, one of the things we get in Mark chapter 3, the verse before, is the Pharisees went out, and after doing what he did in this whole miraculous healing that he was doing, the Pharisees, in verse 6 of chapter 3, went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So the opposition is plotting to kill him. Secondly, the multitudes are about to crush him. Notice in verse 9, so he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. So there's so many people who say, hey, let's get that as an as a, as a option, and get in the boat, which he did on a couple other occasions, and speak from the water so as to preserve his life. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. So these opportunities that people had to find him and hopefully find their healing, find the words of life that Jesus was speaking. Jesus was not seeking celebrity status. Say amen. amen. He is the soul searcher. He's the great physician. His primary goal in, was to go out and preach the kingdom. The signs and wonders that he was doing was secondary to them hearing the message of the preaching of the kingdom of God. And that's what he was doing. And these, these, these jam-packed waiting room, if you will, he's Dr. Jesus, got this jam-packed waiting room. He was emptying that all the time. Many people coming to him, and he's healing all of them. But Jesus said in Mark 2, 17, we already looked at this, those who are well have no need of a physician. So if you think you're okay, self-righteous is what he's dealing with. But he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. That's the greatest healing available to us from God for the conditions that sin has left us in through repentance is the gospel. Now, not only were the multitudes crushing him, these, these uh, opposition wants to kill him, but then you have these unclean spirits. And they're trying to tempt him. Look at verse 11. The unclean spirits, wherever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. Now, what that sounded like, we're not sure. But they were, it was the dem these demons were speaking through these these people they were possessing. Now, there was a news story, I don't know if you heard it, that broke this week, which I found fascinating in context of the readings that I were doing to prepare. And there was this, there were a dozen, well, someone, I think they said 24, 20, 24 of these young girls in Colombia 
who were taken to the hospital because they were collapsing from anxiety and other things. And the reason that that was happening is because they were regularly playing with the Ouija board in their school. And so it started to, this thing started to happen. So as I'm reading one of the commentaries, it's called uh, Preaching the Word with R. Kent Hughes. He writes this, quote, These evil spirits, about this text, these evil spirits, malevolent, obscene, sinister, had wrought bodily injury, psychological trauma, and immense spiritual harm to their victims. Ray Steadman tells of talking with a girl, who's another commentator that I love, talking with a girl who had fallen into the practice of using a Ouija board. He says this, quote, It eventuated in her hearing voices that demanded she write things down before she could sleep at night. Invariably, what she had to write was moral filth, obscenities, ugly, evil words. Sometimes she would have to write pages of them before the voices would cease and she could sleep. This is a mark of the kind of spirits these were, marked our text this morning. These filthy spirits would cast the bodies of their victims before Jesus, crying out with unearthly voices, you are the son of God, in futile attempts to render him powerless, unquote. I just found, wow, what a, what a, well, there it is. Here's what I wrote in my notes. Dear believer, do not be ignorant of these powerful forces of darkness that have one thing in mind, to rob, to kill, and to destroy. They are as real today as they were in Jesus' time. I'm not being sensational. I am being scriptural and I am being rational. These same forces are scheming a confusion that has taken our whole culture captive. Their diabolical ideologies are indoctrinating our children, seducing our young people, and beating down many a seasoned saint with lies that are violently opposed to the Bible, to the gospel, and to the love of God. We must take out the sword of the Spirit. We must be on our knees in prayer. In Ephesians 6, we'll be looking at this with the men on Saturday. He says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, praying always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. You cannot uncouple prayer and the Bible in the offensive attack against these formidable forces called demonics, demons. They are real. They are actively pursuing the destruction of individuals' lives. He said, he st- it says in verse 12, he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Jesus would have nothing to do with Satan's schemes. In God's time, not Satan's, Jesus would be revealed. In the meantime, Jesus would continue to perform in perfect submission to the Father, always doing those things that please the Father, while saying to the devil, away with you, in the authority that he had over the devil and all those demonic forces. So in Jesus' name, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we must stay the course of doing those things that please God and understanding our position in Christ, the authority given to us, we'll look at this in a moment, that we can say to the devil, away with you. When Jesus was tempted, what did he say? It is written, the sword of the spirit. He spent many, 
daily times in prayer. And his final victory was before the cross. It was in Gethsemane when the devil was coming against him to, to as, as it was, great, great drops of blood. It was so intense. And he went and prayed again. And he prayed again the same thing. How we need to keep our swords in our prayer lives on the front lines of the battle that we have today. Jesus is not going to allow anything, not popularity, not success, not the applause of men to seduce him away from his saving mission to preach the gospel and go to the cross. And by those two things, he absolutely destroyed the works of the devil. He defeated him finally and completely. He did that for us. We have this as believers, not as an unbeliever. We as believers have been given an authority in his name to deal with these forces biblically, with the sword of the spirit, prayerfully, with our knees on the ground, and then to go offensively and be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We can stand against the wiles of the devil. We can have done all, withstand having done all to stand in Jesus Christ. I'm getting excited. It's reality. It's true. And we, and you know, one of the greatest things the devil does is hide. And he can hide himself away in so many different ways. And he does that to seduce us. So we must not allow anything to derail our great commission to preach the gospel and live our lives in victory in this world for the sake of Jesus Christ. His kingdom, in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we've been equipped and given these things. So they went, they came to find him. The multitude came to, to Jesus in hope of a cure. The disciples came to Jesus in response to a call. Jesus called them. It came, and he went up on the mountain and called him those who he himself wanted, and they came to him. Now, in Luke, he gives us uh, a little more other things to understand what's going on here because there's much more than what Mark tells us. In Luke chapter 6, he says, it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Verse 13, and when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. So he's, Jesus had spent all night praying. What is he praying? Who is it? Who are the 12? Who's he going to choose? Who are these specially set apart men to carry on the work of the foundational building of the church, the gospel. And so Jesus had many followers, fewer true disciples, but he had 12 apostles chosen by him. It says in verse 13, those he himself wanted. Wanted for what? As apostles. But let me say this to you and to me. Jesus himself wanted you too. He wants you too. He called you to be to himself, not to some philosophy, not to some, he called you to himself because he wanted you. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's want. He wants people to come to him, to come to Jesus. In 2 Peter, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, 
but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance, to the gospel, to the call of God, to the sinner, to come to him and be forgiven. It's, fab- it's fabulous. And he calls us because he wants us. He desires us. They came to him every call of Jesus requires a response. John, in 1 John, it says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness which, of, which, of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. God has spoken through his Son. Hebrews, we looked at that our last book. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the witness that God has given of his Son. So there's this witness going out, and this witness this requires a response. And obedience to the gospel is the first required response. You search the scriptures, Jesus said. For in them you think you have eternal life. But they are them which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. It requires a response. Romans 10, we've looked at this and it might come up several times because we're talking about the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? Or not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So here's the gospel. Here's the preaching of the gospel. But then he says, the next verse, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Because you can hear and not respond, not obey. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When God speaks, faith in that what God has said becomes the salvation of our souls. Believing the preacher. The gospel is Jesus wanting you, wanting me to come to him honestly. Just as I am without one plea. All Billy Graham's uh, crusades. That was the song. What a wonderful song. Just as I am. We can't come any other way. When Jesus called us to himself, he called us as sinners in need of a savior. He calls those who are lost in need of finding. Those who are dead in need of life. All of us. That's how he came. And so the gospel is him wanting to come to honestly, just as we are. The gospel is Jesus calling you, calling me to obey him, meaning hear him and respond. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus forgiving you and making you new. I share this with many of us that are believers here. But if you're not a believer today, you're not a believer this morning, this is the gospel. It is so absolutely incredible. It's for anyone at any place in their life, any place in this world. This message is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So the first response before we talk about anything else, have you received the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to Christ and confessed yourself a sinner and asked him to forgive you 
and then receiving from God his forgiveness. And when you do that, Jesus said it's like you're born all over again. Everything's new. It's brand new. And so being born of the Spirit, what's that like? It's like the wind, Jesus said. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And when Jesus comes into your life, let me tell you, let me and all of many of us here tell you, the testimony is this, it's real, it's true. That knowing my need for forgiveness from a holy, righteous God and coming to him for that through Jesus Christ, knowing the cross that he crucified there, paid the penalty, and asking God to forgive me based on just my believing to receive from him that I am saved. And my life has been changed. It's never the same. My friends used to tell me, oh, he'll be over that in a few years. No, I'm not over it yet. <laughs> How about you? No way. To whom shall I go? He has the words of eternal life. And I'm sad you don't have that. I'm sad you're still thinking, well, that's insane. Well, I guess it is a little insane. But I don't mind being insane for Jesus. Let me tell you what else the gospel is in a nutshell. It's Jesus loving you unconditionally and eternally. When you receive Christ, when I received Christ, born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God in my life was God's assurance, his guarantee. He's mine. I'll never snatch him out of my hand. He's mine. I'm the shepherd. He... Jesus said, he's my good shepherd, my chief shepherd, my great shepherd, and he's going to watch over me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I can tell you, it's true. It's no wonder Psalm 23 is on all these. I just did another memorial on, on Saturday or Friday. And whenever there's a memorial where that person knows the Lord, oh, how glorious is the truth. Jesus said, I am the resurrection life. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he who lives, he who dies and believes shall, however that goes. I always can't get that. The whole deal is death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. My sin has been defeated. Laid aside. And so I have this assurance based on my goodness. <laughs> That's theological. <laughs> no, based on the goodness of God. The greatness of God. The glory of God, the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God. Unconditionally, eternally. It doesn't change. God does not change. I change not. Same yesterday, today, and forever. He, Jesus called them with a purpose. And he called you with a purpose. He didn't call you to go on, wait for the clouds and the harps. He called you to himself. And his purpose here, he appointed 12, that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Let me capture that for you simply. He called you to know him intimately. To be his minister. With his Authority. That's what he called us, all of us as believers. To know him intimately. To be his ministers with his authority. 
In other words, let me, let me simplify it. To love Jesus, be with him. To serve Jesus, be his minister. And to exalt Jesus with his authority. That's what it is. Love Jesus, serve Jesus, exalt Jesus. That's the nutshell of what it means to know him and walk with him and be his disciple. And so in verse 16, it says, he called them individually by name. Do you know your name is the most powerful thing that ever hits your ear? You hear your name. You could have a whole rustling going on and your name, oh, oh, Kevin, Kevin. Or somebody has the same name. Oh, they got the same name. Listen, Jesus called you by name. He said, Rick, got your number. <laughs> he said, yeah, I got your number. You know, I, I, when I came out from New York to get back to right with Lord, I'm driving across. Lord, just get me to California and I'll find you. I'll find you there. I'll find you there. And little I, I get to California and realize, yeah, my number the whole way across the states. He got your name. And he put it into his book of life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so these tw regular, tw 12 regular young men were chosen for a monumental work, the apostles. Now notice it says Peter, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, means rock. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. So he had nicknames for these guys. That is sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite. And here's this, this profound mystery. And Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. And they went into a house. He chose them specifically for a monumental work. Four fishermen, one hated tax collector, one radical zealot, five we know hardly anything about, and one from the enemy's camp. All these had no formal theological training. They didn't need it. They had Jesus. They had Jesus. The imperfections of the 12, as they would be called, and for me, a man like Peter, makes God's grace so much more understandably wonderful to see who God chose for the monumental work, the foundation laying that God was doing in his kingdom. They are, there are no supermen. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> there are no superwomen. There are only super saints saved by grace by a super savior. That's the gospel. That's who Jesus chose. And oh, what Jesus can do with such a diverse group of unlikely candidates. These 12 and everyone else called to Jesus. What he can do to build his kingdom. What he chose to use to build his kingdom. Are you and me? Not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish this world to, to confound the wise. The base things of this world. And God, it says God has chosen, God has chosen. All special choosing, as you know personally, intimately, in knowing Christ. To think. And when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. For me. He did it for me. He did it for you. All those who come to him get it. 
knowing him intimately. In John it says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of this Father has, the heart of God has been revealed through his Son, that we might know it and know him. Jesus gave the name Pete to, he took Simon and said his name is Peter. Rocky, 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 dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and this guy failed. He was miserably fail, a miserable failure. He fell down. I'll never deny you. And the little girl comes out. Oh, no, I don't even. And then he, he's actually cursing. If he did, let him be eternally doomed. He fell down. But let me tell you what happened. Jesus lifted him up. Jesus told Peter, Satan has desired you that he may sift you as we, but I prayed for you that your faith failed not. Peter may have failed, but his faith failed not. And Jesus made sure that he prayed for him. He told him, eyeball to eyeball. And so when Jesus is being led away, and the, as he's, as he's the, the third time the rooster crows, or the rooster crows and Peter goes, he's mine. Jesus said, because Peter said, I'll never fail you. Said, Jesus said, Peter, I know you. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I know you, Peter. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny you even know me three times. Oh, no, they might do that, not me. I'm, I'm Rocky. And sure enough, as Jesus is being tried and Peter's there and John led him into that courtyard, and the third time he denies him, the rooster crows. And you know what Luke says? Jesus looked at him. I think in Peter's brokenness, the love of God flooded that failure. As he realized, he knows me intimately. He knows exactly what's going to happen. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend. And he lifted him up and said, Peter... Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. I'm not done with it yet, Peter. And oh, to hear that is such a lift out of the dark failures of our lives to realize God is not done with us. He lifts us up and sets our feet on solid ground again. And we realize he called me. He wants to use me. He's not done with me. Wow. That's the gospel and Peter knew the grace of God. He writes about it in his epistles. The grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. Every work of God in us and through us should nurture our love for the grace of God. By grace you've been saved through faith, not not of yourselves. Peter says, rest your hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed when Jesus comes. 1 Peter 5, 8 May the God of all grace who called us to eternal glory. Peter just writes about the grace of God. And let me tell you, the more we fail, the more we fall in love with the grace of God. Peter said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in it. Let God shower that grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Literally, grace superabounded in Romans. Do you know the grace of God? Or did you shower this morning under the grace of God to realize this grace that he has for me will lift me out of any pit and set my feet again on solid ground of God's goodness 
in God's mercy, in God's forgiveness, his eternal, unconditional love for me. Paul is another example of that. Paul, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. And in his writings to Corinthians, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. I'm like one that should have been stillborn. And yet, and I persecuted the church of God. And Paul described what, his, what he was doing as a ravenous animal would, sh- would take a corpse and just shake it to pieces and tear it apart. That's what Paul looked at what he was doing to God's people, the church. And yet he says, by the grace of God, I am what I, and his grace is not in vain. It changes life. It changes our lives. To realize that God called us to himself, to know him intimately, to be his ministers with his authority. And by the grace of God, we can begin to go deeper with Jesus and love him more. To be more available to him to use us more. And to realize the power that's extended to us by the power of the Holy Spirit in, our, in him giving us his authority to walk through this world with our feet shod with the gospel, the preparation of peace. To walk through this world and realize we're leaving an imprint. Our lives count. Something's happening through us. Paul wrote to the Galatians, for you've heard my former conduct in Judaism, how I did these things. He, but he called me through his grace. I like that. I, the picture I have is he took me and he kind of dragged me through his grace. <laughs> it's kind of like that. You know, it's like, I don't deserve that. And, and No, no, let me, let me just pull you through the grace again. And just let it wash over all these things. And to Timothy he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Timothy is beloved son. He's communicating to him his own salvation experience. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me worthy, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. And oh, to hand down the testimony of the grace of God and the call of God to those who are following after us, is so powerful. Timothy again, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, and what they have all accepted, is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul said, I am chief. Chief sinner, <laughs> Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 1.26, says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. Called through his grace. Yesterday, our Garrett did a, did a, did a workshop. It was part of this uh, men's conference at Riverview Community Church in Kent. Men of the Spirit Conference. I was so proud of him. He did a a little message to that, that was called Fire, Fired Up Fatherhood. It was a little workshop at this conference. His first point was freed up with his grace. Wow, what a perfect thing. Freed with his grace. He's talking to young dads, and you know how that is. Many dads here know what it's like to be a parent and raising kids. And so he appointed 12 to know him intimately, to be his ministers with his authority, to be his fishers of men, by the grace of God. 
His servants by the grace of God. His ambassadors by the grace of God. His messengers by the grace of God. His preachers, his workers, his soldiers, his farmers, his athletes, and you name it. There's many pictures that God gives to us in the Bible that we might understand relationship with God by his grace. Love Jesus, serve Jesus, exalt Jesus. Now we have this second reason they came to Jesus was to find fault. Then the multitudes came together again, verse 20, so that they could not so much even eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him. For he said, he's out of his mind. This guy, he's, he's insane. Something's, going on. Something's wrong here. Now, he was also accused of being in collusion with Satan. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub was a heathen deity. The Jews ascribed to Beelzebub supremacy over all other demons, Satan, Beelzebub. He, by the rule of the demons, he casts out demons. Now, this is, this is insane. This is insane. In John chapter 10, verse 20, it says, And many said, he has a demon, he's mad. Now, what had he just done? He had just opened the eyes of a blind man. They said, well, he did it by the demonic realm. Really? That's insane. Jesus had done what any unprejudiced mind would say, that's amazing, that's good. But he answers their accusations with a parable. A parable is simply a figure, a story of a, of a figure placed alongside a truth to try and illuminate it. The two Greek words are para alongside and bella, which means to cast alongside. So now we're going to get into the parables in chapter 4, our next few studies. The parables in four, so we won't get there now. But what, look, here's what he said. He called them to himself and said to them in parables, verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. It's over. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless the, he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So Jesus points out that if he was doing this by the power of Satan, then Satan would be working against himself, which makes no sense at all. That's insane. Just as a kingdom or house that is divided will destroy itself, which is what we're seeing, I believe, in our nation, so Satan would be destroying himself by doing this. Satan would be bringing about his own destruction. And Jesus pointed out that doesn't make any sense. Now he says, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. So it's three things he's pointing out here. Number one, he is an authority over Satan. He is not in some collective bargaining agreement with Satan. Secondly, he is opposed to Satan. He will ultimately bind, plunder, and destroy Satan, his house, and his kingdom. In Hebrews chapter 2, Inasmuch then as children have become partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He's saying this is what Jesus did on the cross. So number one, he is an authority over Satan. Secondly, 
he is opposed to Satan and will ultimately destroy him. But third, those who follow Satan will be subject to eternal condemnation. These are pretty heavy words. Now, Luke includes a couple of helpful verses. Same story, but he says in Luke chapter 11, if I cast out the demons with the finger of God, like, nope. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, that is Jesus over Satan, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Now here it is, verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. You cannot be both. They, they are mutually exclusive. You are either with Jesus or with Satan. There is not even the slightest overlap of these two kingdoms, of these two houses. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan are on an unavoidable collision course. And the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of this world will be bound, plundered, and completely destroyed by Jesus. There's only one kingdom that will prevail, and that is God's kingdom. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Let me tell you, thy kingdom will be done, and thy kingdom will come, and Jesus will come as Lord of lords, King of kings. He will set up his kingdom on earth, I believe, and there will be this reigning of Jesus Christ and his people being prepared where he will declare unequivocally, I win. The victory is mine, saith the Lord. None can stand against him. In Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his dear son. How? In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's it. We are a, king, we are a kingdom family. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, the unpardonable sin as it's called. Rejecting Jesus Christ as Son of God and only Savior is the only, that's the one sin. All, Jesus said all other sins will be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son of Man. Blasphemy against God. But this one sin cannot be forgiven because it's the only way, means by which all other sin is forgiven. So when someone rejects Christ as Savior, rejects the gospel, rejects Jesus, now that may not be the unpardonable sin yet, but it's dangerously close. An unwillingness to come to the light to repent and receive forgiveness. In John chapter 3, read, God so loved the world, and we hear all that. But here's what it says. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who did not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, Jesus, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus came as the light of the world. The gospel is the light. God's word, God's truth shines in the darkness. And men want to scatter because they don't want to be exposed. They don't have to repent. And so Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life for the wrath of God abides on him. There's only one means by which we get right with God. It's through the gospel. 
And that's for anyone and everyone who will come. The work of the Holy Spirit is simply to testify of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. And so when he comes into the world, Jesus said he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, John 16, because they believe not in me. One sin. You don't believe in Jesus. You want to reject Jesus. You've just rejected God's only means, his his only provision by which we are saved through the cross of Jesus Christ. Stands apart. That's why Christianity stands apart from any other philosophy, any other religion. Because it's the cross of Jesus Christ. The king dying. The Savior dying on a cross and accomplishing for us this thing called eternal life. And we can know God. The more you put Jesus off, the easier it is to put Jesus off. That's why it's dangerous. The more you harden your heart, the harder your heart becomes. That's why it's dangerous. The more you gamble your soul, the greater the gamble that you will lose your soul. So Jesus said, what does it profit man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You know, someone said, I don't know where this came from, but if I am wrong and Christianity is not true, then what have I lost? It's changed my life for good. But if Christianity is true, then where do you, what do you stand to lose? Everything. Your very soul. Satan loves to take the scriptures and use them against the sensitive soul and pardonable sin. But I love what Hal Lindsey said. How many of your sins were yet future when Jesus hung on the cross? All of them. There was one who reviled Christ on the cross. Found mercy. Jesus prayed for him. And that was just one of many. That's why that's such an incredible truth. You see, Satan will seek to drive you from God with hopeless condemnation. Whereas the Holy Spirit of God draws you to God with hopeful conviction. That may be right as to receiving Christ, but as we live our lives, this is what happens to those who are coming to, are, why we come to Jesus. And so it's, it's urgent. Until you respond to Jesus and come to him and be saved, there remains an urgency for you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's that simple. The gospel. The final thought briefly. He says his mothers and brothers came and standing outside. And so Jesus has this whole group of people around. And, it's, and they say, hey, your mom's here. Your brothers are here. We, they want to talk to you. And Jesus looks, kind of turns around, looks at the group. And he says, who is my mother? And my bro- or my brothers? Who's my family? And he looked around and answered them saying, who is my mother and brothers? He looked around in this circle and said, here are my mother. And he's looking around. And here are my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he says, is my brother and my sister and my mother. See, that's what happens. You see, 
Why do we come to you? We come because we want to become family. Now, what I will say is, well, relationships are the context of salvation. Family. Whoever does the will of God, starting with the gospel. We're of the same family in the same house and heading for the same kingdom. That's family. Jesus loves his family as dysfunctional as we are. We love one another, however slow we are in being willing to do that. A little girl asked her mom, where do humans come from? Her mom answered, God made Adam and Eve and they had, chil had children and that's who we all descend from. A few days later, the girl asked her dad the same question. Her dad answered, many years ago, there were monkeys from which people evolved. The confused little girl returned to her mother and said, Mom, how is it possible that you told me that people were created by God and Dad said people were evolved from monkeys? Her mom answered, well, well, dear, it's very simple. I told you about my side of the family and he told you about his. <laughs> Probably you've heard this, but I'll share it anyway. Mark Twain. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> One more. Because really, we need to be able to laugh at ourselves, amen. We're part of God's family. Family is a place where you can let loose a little bit. <laughs> and families are dysfunctional, okay? That's it. <laughs> so, a man and his wife were sitting in the living room discussing a living will. Just so you know, I never want to live in a vegetative state, dependent on some machine and fluids from a bottle. If that ever happens, just pull the plug, the man says. His wife got up, unplugged the TV, and threw out all the beer. God help us, amen, <laughs> to become family, is to do the will of God. And I believe in, in our hearts as being born again. There's an understanding that was never there about what love really means and the depths to which love really is, goes. And God is at work by his grace that we understand this family thing. Tell you, when I was growing up, family was not important to me. I used to say, I don't want to be married, don't have kids. I'll be, I'll be 70 soon. And I remember driving my oldest son to Texas. It was a three or four day journey in his U-Haul. It's the first time I ever really thought, I wonder what my mom and dad were thinking when I left. Because I left at 18 and then I got a van fixed up and drove to California. And my mom and dad were godly people. So I wonder what they were thinking. And I, they were already gone, so I thought, I'll never know. But then I realized my mom had written a couple diaries. And it was right around the same time. And in there, she cried every night. And I started realizing. And then I had my own kids, now grandkids. And I say now, you know, when it's all said and done, 
the only thing that we have is family. That's it. It's family. I, on Friday, I did a memorial in here. The Moss, uh, Phyllis Mossman. And I'm watching that 15-minute power, you know, the PowerPoint slide thing. And whenever I do memorials, it's always just, it's, it's striking how you can take someone's life and put it in pictures for 15 minutes. But behind every one of those pictures, there's a story. And as people sit here and start talking, it's family. To become family. Let me say to you, I don't know what your family, your biological family is like. But in the family of God, things are different. Because God's different. And we want to learn and appreciate more and more just how much God loves family. Stand with me as the worship team comes out and let's close in song. So Lord, we do stand before you, our great, great God, to be worshipped, but yet our heavenly Father. So Lord, we ask now, take and just renew again for us this great thing called Christianity, called salvation, called redemption. You've called us to know you intimately, to be your ministers with your authority, that you, Lord, might take our lives and shape them in the context of family, relationship, where each one of us individually uniquely called, uniquely wanted by you for, work, for a work that you have prepared beforehand for each and every one of us. So, Lord, as we just close, hear our, we just want to worship you. Bless you, Lord. Receive from us our praise.